You are listening to the Visualizing War podcast. In each episode, we look at how people have experienced, described, or imagined armed conflict in different periods and places, and we discuss the impact which representations of war and peace can have on us as individuals and societies. Hello, my name is Alice Koenig, and I direct the Visualizing War and Peace project at the University of St Andrews. In 2023, with generous funding from the Imperial War Museum's 1418 Now Legacy Fund, we're going to be hosting two art exhibitions designed to explore one of the many legacies of conflict, forced migration. Artist Diana Forster has created a moving art installation for us, which traces the long journey taken by her mother as a young child when she and her family were forcibly displaced from Poland during World War II to forced labour camps in Soviet Russia. Entitled Somewhere to Stay, its 10 panels depict the comfort and security of life before deportation and the various forms of accommodation which the forced migrants ended up trying to make home in, from wooden barracks in Siberian gulags to an ordinary house in Uzbekistan, to army tents, stables in a palace in Iran, to thatched rendezvous in Tanzania and finally Nissan huts in resettlement camps in Scotland. The aim of this artwork is to communicate the unimaginably shocking rupture between a settled normal life and a terrifying future decided by people who didn't care whether those they were transporting lived or died. Diana's family home was in fact in modern day Ukraine. And the story she tells through her art obviously has distressing resonances with what many people are suffering today in many different parts of the world. Over the coming months, we want the story of this historic forced migration from 80 years ago to help us ask a question of great contemporary importance. How can we visualize the rupture, loss and long lasting struggles experienced by people who've been displaced from their homes through conflict? To help answer that question and to generate more conversation about how forced migration gets narrated and understood, we're releasing a series of podcasts featuring different voices on forced migration, including people with lived experience of displacement and a range of artists and authors who have thought hard about how to visualise forced migration for others. So today I'm really delighted to be joined by Bosnian-American documentary photographer Diana Muminovic. Diana has personal experience of displacement herself, having moved to the US from Bosnia as a child in the aftermath of the Bosnian War. After studying in the US and getting degrees from Western Kentucky University and Ohio University, she returned to her childhood home to open a school of photography in Zenica, the only photography school in Bosnia-Herzegovina that offers photo classes to everyone in the community, regardless of their age. She works for Medica Zenica, an NGO that supports women and girls who've survived war rape or been victims of other kinds of violence. And she now divides her time between Bosnia and the US. For Diana, photography is vital in both documenting and narrating the impacts of war and the struggles that victims of conflict, particularly women, face in securing basic human rights. Her early work focused on sharing stories from Bosnia-Herzegovina and her first solo exhibition was at the US Congress building in 2010. She's held many other exhibitions since. Her photography has won a range of awards and she's a much sought after speaker on conflict photography, on journalism more broadly, and on contemporary debates about migration and the so-called refugee crisis. In 2015, Diana spent some time documenting the experiences of groups of refugees. From and in recent months, she's been developing some new work in support of Ukrainian refugees in Bosnia. Diana, thank you so much for making time to talk to me today. I've got lots of questions to ask you about your experiences of photographing war and its aftermath and the decisions you've made in representing refugees and forced migration to others. But first, I just want to welcome you to the Visualising War and Peace podcast. It's really wonderful to be able to include you in our series. 
Thank you, dear Alice. I'm so honored to be a part of this project of yours. And I'm so happy to be here and answer all the questions you may have. Great. So we're going to be talking about your work documenting different refugee experiences through photography in a minute. But first, I wonder if we can go back to your childhood and just talk a little bit about your own experiences as a refugee, which have clearly shaped your life and your work ever since. You've got an essay on your website called I'm a Refugee, and you talk about a defining moment in your childhood during the Bosnian War when refugees started coming to your hometown. You write, I stayed watching people pour into my hometown, fleeing from surrounding villages. I delivered clothes and food to them. They spoke with different accents, much like someone from Boston finding themselves in Nashville. And we turned our schools into shelters for them. We called them refugees. And it's clear from that that you sort of remember the moment where you discovered this identity of what someone might become when they become a refugee. I wonder if you can just tell us a bit about that experience. When did it happen? What year was it? And what stage in the Bosnian conflict? Yes. So before I get into this particular part, I would first like to say a few things about the Bosnian War, which started in April of 1992. And I was just a little girl. I was nine years old. And it was one of those typical sunny days I was playing outside, picking flowers, quite literally, when I heard the first siren going off. And soon after, I heard a bomb or a sound I've never heard before. So I rushed down to the basement and I rolled down, hitting each step. And then my father saved me from actually hitting my head completely. And it was my first introduction to what my childhood was going to be for the next four years. So from April of 1992 until December of 1995, I spent most of my childhood living in that very basement, hiding from bombs and the shootings and everything that was happening in the, the surrounding areas. So I lived in a city called Zenica, and it's an economic center of Bosnia and Herzegovina because we have a steel company that was built in 1892. And it's also really well known for a stadium where all the soccer leagues from around the world come and play on this stadium. But what was particular about my city during the Bosnian War is that we were sort of a free zone in this period. Occasionally we would have, you know, the shootings and, you know, bombs thrown at us, but not as nearly as in surrounding or neighboring towns. We were not the target. The target was the capital city, which was only about 60 to 70 kilometers from Zenica and its capital, Sarajevo, and they were under the siege. And so I had cousins there and nobody could exit the town and it was quite scary. But for us in Zenica, we didn't have water, food, or electricity. And when sirens go off, you had to go and hide into the basement. At this time, because we were sort of, we were not the target, right? Suddenly, our town was filled with internally displaced, you know, people. And it's interesting, after the war, I went to every single one of these 
towns and villages and they're only like 20 minutes from Zenitsa or just a couple of hours from Zenitsa. But what was happening is there was an aggression on Bosnia or they actually call it an international armed conflict. But what was really happening is ethnical cleansing of the Bosnian Muslim population. So the majority of the Bosnian rural areas that were predominantly Muslim, they were the target and they were one of the first ones to be attacked. So people were either kicked out of their homes or their homes burned overnight or they were bombarded. So people were leaving. So they poured into my town and they came into my elementary school. And I remember, which now it brings me to this sentence that you introduced us at the beginning. I remember my whole entire gym was filled with people. Now, when I think about it, I remember everyone was just, you know, laying down on the floor and I I can't quite find words, but from that moment on, it was clear that we were not going to go to school in my school. We had to go someplace else because we had to make place for the new people who came into town. But what's interesting is I have to emphasize, even though that as people, we instantly reacted and we wanted to help, we delivered clothes toys and whatever we could find to eat. I don't know if I've said it enough, but we were really hungry during the war. There was no food, no water, no electricity. And when it was safe for us to go, like us kids would have to go and find sources of water from someplace else and then bring them, you know, home. So when these new people arrived to Zenitsa, we started calling them refugees. And it's funny to think about how even in their most horrible situation in their life, we did help them, but we instantly tried to make differences between us. Mm -hmm. We noticed that they spoke differently. We sometimes, people from the city, consider rural accents to be a little bit funny. And so... When the kids were accepted to go to school with us, they would be made fun of. And it's like there's war going on and yet we're paying attention to like how different we are. And we're still making time to, you know, make fun of each other, which it was a terrible thing. But that was my first introduction to refugees, to what it meant to be a refugee. And for me, it meant that people came with nothing and they left everything they had and they probably will never go back to their homes because they either don't exist anymore or it would take decades to renovate them. And then they slept in my school and you can imagine without water or electricity and to take showers, it it became smelly and it's just, Everything that came with that situation defined that word for me. And Mm -hmm. we sort of called our own people refugees Mm -hmm. when they were really living in their own country. What you've just sketched there offers really fascinating insights into 
a child's first exposure to the very concept of refugee status. It's interesting to hear about how your experiences of the conflict then intersected with these experiences of people who were fleeing from other places and ending up in your town. And what you've just talked us through kind of really testifies to the very vulnerable status of refugees. As you say, these people who are internally displaced in their own country and who are vulnerable not only because they have lost their homes, they've been displaced from where they used to live, they've lost everything, vulnerable not only because they're relying on other people now to provide them with food and shelter in very, very basic ways, but vulnerable also because the community they've come to is marking them out as different. And as you say, within the same population, within the same country, so that the multiple levels of their vulnerability and their kind yeah. of marginalization. So as, as you said, Diana, you lived through the Bosnian conflict for three, nearly four years. And I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit more about what that was like for you as you grew up started when you were nine you were 12 13 by the time it it ended what do you remember about how it impacted your life so living in bosnia during the conflict meant constant fear and constant wishing for peace i mean i, I was a girl who every day woke up wishing for peace or for war to end and I feel like I remember every moment of these almost four years spent hiding in the basement. I remember the the anxiety, the running, and I mostly remember being on my way to school and then sirens interrupting me. And then I would have to go to the nearest basement to hide. And my biggest fear was to be stuck with people that I didn't know thinking, will I ever make it home from here? How will my family know where I'm at? It was terrifying and you know, in those moments. And then actually making it home. And again, I mentioned, you know, living without food or electricity. And sometimes we would get these food aids from the organizations. And sometimes, you know, they, they would send us sugar. So we would, you know, because the stores didn't work and of course there, there was nothing to buy anyway, uh, sometimes we would melt the sugar. We would put them on spoons and hold them over the candle just to make something sweet to eat. And it's moments like this that really bring me back to these situations of the war. Then I also remember us kids hiding and then singing in basements just so we can kind of survive these terrible moments and ignore that there is shootings, you know, in the distance. And I remember my first steps of almost becoming this advocate for peace. Us kids created this little notebook, which was actually a petition for peace. We would stop people on the street and ask them to sign a petition for peace thinking in our heads that this was something that was going to stop the war. And I remember there was, the siren was going off and I was like, I don't care. I have to cross the road because I saw these policemen standing there and I was so committed to this that I wanted them to sign the book too. And it's almost like living in a totally different world within the world that's actually going on. So it was a terrible thing, but us kids found a way to find these little, you know, interesting moments to keep mm -hmm. us going. 
So various coping strategies that you developed for yourselves, but what you've just sketched there reminds us of the secondary impact of conflict on children. So things like hunger, but also I was really struck that you said your biggest fear was getting lost in a bomb shelter in a basement with people you didn't know. And again, that just really testifies to the many different impacts and the disruptive nature that a conflict has on a child's life. I'm fascinated that you became an advocate for peace and you set up this petition. I'd love to hear more about that. Do you remember how you imagined peace would be when you were dreaming of peace, when you were petitioning for peace? I did. I think when I did imagine peace and at that time, it was me imagining that the shooting and the killings would stop, that we would not be hearing uh, about another person who got shot or another person who was leaving the country. And to go back to people who were fleeing, the most difficult part about the war was always learning that somebody got killed or somebody left the country and it's like is anybody going to stay in the country and and continue living there it's very interesting that you say that i was reading an article today about the current conflict in ukraine and the depopulation not purely through airstrikes and through death but through obviously huge displacement and the way in which the depopulation then impacts so much on individual lives and on society more generally. So these multiple losses and disappearances that you talk about. Just mentioned that the airstrikes were my biggest fear of all because you could see the planes above your head, you could see them releasing bombs, you 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 witness it, you know, with your own eyes and you don't know because I'm a kid I don't know if they're gonna fall right next to me or if they're gonna fall in a town that's next to mine and and, and it's still going on everything that I've survived we are witnessing in mm-hmm. Ukraine and people are leaving and I myself left as well Mm-hmm. I mean, you sketched there the, the, the various traumas that you experienced as a child during that conflict, but towards the end of it, you became a refugee yourself and, and you've written about this experience saying, soon I found myself with no choice but to join them in their flight. I caught the last bus to America and watched familiar people fade in the distance, my grandma, my friends. Can you talk us through that experience? Why did you leave at that point? How did America become your destination? And, and what was it like to leave Bosnia and, and set out for somewhere new and somewhere totally unfamiliar? So originally in 1995, my family wanted us to move to Australia because we had some family members who fled even before the war. But my grandmother and I, we did not want to get separated. Of course, my my grandma, she didn't want to leave the country and I didn't want to leave grandma. So what happened is we ended up staying in Bosnia, but my parents have lost their jobs. We sold one of our apartment buildings that we had. Together with my two brothers, we were living with my grandmother. So then in 1997, we call it the last bus to the United States, which was open for families who were of mixed religions, meaning the parents had different faiths, which in my case, that was true. My father is a Bosnian Muslim and my mother, Bosnian Roman Catholic. So we fulfilled 
the sponsor's application or however that was going on at the time. And my parents did all of this behind my back, of course, because they knew I wouldn't want to leave because my grandmother wouldn't want to leave and so on. And then one day they just told me I had to go and take a photo and the photo was meant for the passport. And next thing you knew, we were literally on the bus to Croatia because from Croatia, we had a flight for United States. And I remember getting on that bus and thinking, I'm seeing my grandmother for the very last time and all the people who came to say goodbyes. And I didn't know if I would ever get to see them again and if I will ever return. And then I found myself in the US. And I can tell that you're getting very emotional as you talk through those very vivid memories of those last goodbyes and the, you know, the trauma of separation, not knowing compounded by this the lack of control of a situation that you have as a child anyway. Where did you first stay when you arrived in America? Did you end up staying where you finally settled or did you have several moves once you got there? So the sponsors picked New York for us. And for a moment, that didn't sound so terrible, right? Until we actually arrived to New York and the sponsors got a phone call from our first neighbors from Bosnia, who actually migrated to United States a couple of years before us to a town called Bowling Green, Kentucky. So they insisted on us moving there. And the next, the very next day, they flew us from New York to Nashville. And then we took one hour ride to Kentucky. And I remember seeing, you know, those rolled up haze on the side of the road and everything was flat. There were no mountains and no tall buildings like like in Europe or in New York and I was thinking to myself this is just some out in the nowhere place we're just passing through but next thing you know we're actually arriving to a place we're going to live and I was in complete shock (laughs) we got this apartment and it was an obviously a really old apartment we got these old mattresses with stains on it and they were just really dirty and I mean there were bugs and whatnot in this apartment and it just didn't feel like home. That phrase you've just used it didn't feel like home captures the essence of that experience of displacement you know you talked about the landscape not feeling like home the home itself not feeling like home how long were you in that particular piece of accommodation and at what point did you and your family start to build your own home and put down roots and feel like you were homemaking in Kentucky? I think we were in this place for at least one year because I remember it was really close to the school that I was going to for about a year. And then we moved to a different apartment building. And by that time, my parents had found work. But of course, it was factory work. But the new life was so different than the one in Bosnia. We had to have a car because there was no public transportation. So nobody walked 
in this town. So you had to have your car. So somehow you had to have everything within this first year in order to exist, which was impossible. I have no idea how we even made progress to, to, to somehow start feeling better and making our way up, mm -hmm. assimilating into this new life. And that labor of adjustment, as you say, goes on for a very long time. Sorry, when you arrived in the US, did you speak English? I spoke really basic stuff like, hi, my name is Diana. And, you know, I knew how old I was. And I remember that I was terrified that I would never be able to learn English. And I kept on asking my friends who came before me, like, how long did it take you? But it was different for everyone. And I think I just woke up one day and I was speaking English. And I, I want to say it took me approximately maybe three to six months. It, it still wasn't perfect, but going from zero to this was good enough. My biggest support was my English as a second language teacher came from Brazil. I had to, of course, I had to attend these ESL classes, but then she would pick me up and sometimes take me to places with her husband. For me, those moments were the moments that I mostly remember because those were my first moments as a refugee in a totally new country and you just felt that actually that somebody actually cared for you and wanted to welcome you and wanted to make your life a little bit easier so that teacher clearly played an important role in helping you start to feel like you belonged like you could build a future you mentioned also that there were other people from bosnia in general, how did the community react to refugees from Bosnia? There was a fairly substantial scheme of um, resettlement. Was it generally welcoming? Did you experience hostility? Did you experience tensions from the wider community at all? I have to say in my situation, but I can also say for the majority of the Bosnian population here, and there is quite a lot of us in this town, I don't think we've ever experienced any discrimination at all mm -hmm. maybe every now and then somebody would say go back where you came from but it's usually came from people who were not educated enough to n know the situation that we were in so I think we were really well accepted and we made big progress in this community you know looking back to where this town was when we first came in early 90s or late 90s to where it is today, it transformed. And mm -hmm. I feel that the Bosnian community and just in general, the immigrants have really transformed it. But those first days or those first years, for me personally, I could not erase the fact that I felt that I was less than the community that I was, you know, living in. I didn't have the things that they would have first year of high school. I didn't have a car. And even when I got the car, it wasn't the greatest car like our friends and, you know, in high school had. So like, I always measured myself in a way that there is something that I'm lacking 
and it wasn't a good feeling for me mm-hmm. it's it's not that i i was experiencing this from the people but it was just an inner feeling and every time somebody would introduce me and when they would say this is diana she doesn't speak english very well she's a refugee from bosnia or if they would just say she's coming from bosnia it somehow just hits you and you feel that you are not on the same level as everyone else because Mm -hmm. you either don't speak english or you are a refugee and for me that was really hard to accept So you just pointed out two sides of the refugee experience, if I can put it like that, or two aspects of being um, part of a refugee community. One is that sense of not fully belonging, not fully being integrated, perhaps, or having the privileges and the ease of interaction and communication that everyone has. But also you mentioned that, in fact, over time, the Bosnian community in Kentucky has really added value, um, has contributed hugely has transformed that society that community so there are two sides really to that sort of the refugee narrative you know you've talked about the sense of loss the sense of separation the sense of displacement and leaving behind loved things loved people loved places but also I'm really struck by that experience of having an identity imposed on you through your status and you've talked and written about this in the past about not wanting to be defined by the word refugee so in your essay I'm a refugee you write I knew that I did not want to be defined by this word refugee refugee was that old mattress I slept on in my first year in the United States refugee was the basement I hid in while planes dropped bombs on my town refugee was as dirty as my school where refugees slept and nearly 20 years later it's as dirty as Camp Opatovac in Croatia, where I recently witnessed the world's most recent refugee migration. And just in that short quotation, you do really important work in helping us visualize what forced migration is like. The word refugee is not an identity that anyone would voluntarily choose for themselves. And your definitions there help us grasp some of the reasons why the fear, the squalor, the making do with whatever bed you can get hold of. So based on your own experiences, what kinds of things would you like more people to understand about the experience of becoming or being labelled as a refugee? Well, it was feeling homeless. It's like you have nothing, but yet you're looking into this really bright future. But it's really the feeling of feeling less than whoever is in that society at the moment and thinking, will I ever reach this point of accommodation or life or whatever it is that, you know, you have in mind to not feel like so unworthy, if that makes sense. But I also have to point out with all these experiences, you know, my personal and then watching people, especially through my work, the truth is that today, you know, after I have gone through all of these phases, I so proudly tell everyone I am a refugee, even though I am not a refugee anymore. But I am, I was. So I don't think it's some. It, it's a part of myself that I can erase just like that I did assimilate and I feel that the planet earth is my home regardless if I'm legal or illegal Mm -hmm. there are always these political situations and why displacements are happening or forced migration why should I not feel at home somewhere if somebody's kicking me from my own home 
is my question. That's why it's really important to talk about this topic. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting to hear you say that you actually have pride partly in that identity now, but you've also reminded us that that identity, one of the essential features of that identity of being a refugee is feeling disadvantaged and the way in which you might internalize that as well. You use the word unworthy. So it's a label that is imposed on you by external circumstances, but it's something that you then internalize and it becomes unwillingly part of your identity. You've begun mentioning your work, so it's a good moment to turn to some of that. And in a minute, I do want to talk about the photography work that you've done documenting different refugee experiences, people from Syria, people from Ukraine. But first, it would be great if we could start by looking at some of the photography projects that you've done in Bosnia-Herzegovina. I'd really like to start with your award-winning images of the aftermath of the Bosnian War, where you document the exhumation of mass graves, the painful processes of identification, the grief of those still mourning their loved ones, or having final confirmation that their bodies have been found. I should say that listeners can see a carousel of these images on Deanna's website, um, and that's deannaphoto.com. And Deanna has very kindly shared a selection with us as well, which will be on the Visualizing War blog um, if you want to look at them as you listen. So Deanna, your collection of photographs on the aftermath of the Bosnian War is very, very powerful. And I think one of the things that strikes me most about the photographs that you've taken is your skill in capturing very subtle emotions on camera, which then evoke the wider tragedy of the war. So for example, I'm thinking of a photo of four people wearing raincoats, digging by the side of a lake in a drizzle. And they're they're part of a team that's exhuming mass graves. There's a dog prancing around at the edge of the water. And the dog's playfulness, I think, brilliantly offsets the physical and the emotional labor of the people in the photo. Three of them are bent over digging while the fourth one takes a break and stands watchfully by waiting to see what gets unearthed. So that's one of the photos that struck me. And there are also there's another with very somber interactions between three men who've just dug up a victim's passport. In another, there's a forensic pathologist who's standing with her hands on her hips as she looks like she's bracing herself to start processing more jawbones and broken skulls that sit on her lab table. And together, that collection really captures just how much work is done by so many different people in processing the aftermath of conflict. So I wonder if you can tell us a bit about how this project came about, what particular aspects of war's aftermath you were keen to highlight, and by all means, talk through one or two of the photos that form part of that collection. I started working on this project right after I graduated from Western Kentucky University. I was asked to tell a story why so many Bosnians were living in Kentucky. So it was impossible for me not to talk about the war because in one way or another, we were here because the war happened. In that process, I met a lot of women who were Bosnian Muslim women who were still waiting for their loved ones to be identified. So after I met them, I knew the following year there would be a commemoration because there is a yearly commemoration in a particular place in Bosnia. In case their loved ones are found, they would go to this funeral to commemorate. And that's what happened. So I started working on this project and it led me to this lake because while I was in Bosnia, I learned that there were so many other mass graves still being discovered. And one of them was this lake 
and it was a process to get to the lake you first had to take a boat and i included one of the visually fun photos it looks like just people on a canoe having fun but what's happening is you you can't go with by car you have to hop and first you travel through woods it takes a really long time to find this hidden place you know and then you jump on this little boat and then you go to this lake and what happened this year when I was there the hydropower station was actually having problems and it's the hydropower station that's on the border with Bosnia the lake dried and when the lake dried some of the locals from the Bosnian side reported that there were bodies that floated or that they've noticed the Missing Persons Institute of Bosnia and Herzegovina started this action where they called for people who wanted to volunteer and dig the lake and try to find remains. There were a lot of people who actually were trying to find their own family members. Other people were just helping there. And it was also one of those scenes where you are introduced to beauty and horror at the same time. Because the lake and the surroundings is like so beautiful. You stop and you you can't believe how beautiful it is. The moment you start digging, you suddenly realize that there is terror and all these horrible stories that come with it. But what had happened is in a nearby town called Visegrad, where this river floats that eventually goes into this lake civilians were thrown in the river so that's why they were being found over here so that's how this documentation began and then it just led from one scene Mm -hmm. to another so you clearly feel a bit of a mission to document, use photography to document, to testify to the process of exhumation, the process of discovery and, and uh, how people are experiencing aftermath. But I'm struck that some of the photos in the collection are really quite documentary. They capture a snapshot in time. So maybe a boy looking at the flower that he's about to lay in a commemoration ceremony or three women whose raw grief is really etched on their faces in three very different ways. Other photographs are a bit more artfully constructed. They use reflections, for example, or unusual lighting to add meaning to an image. So I was wondering what balance you like to strike between documenting a real moment in real time and using the art of photography to represent war's aftermath more abstractly. I think when I'm in situations like the lake, I always have to document the truth that's in front of my eyes. And it's a matter of me finding an interesting angle or some type of a reflection to add something. I mean, how do you add beauty to such horror? But the place is beautiful. And I think it's one of those stories that you have to read about to know, you know, what's really behind. And I try to also find visual interesting ways to tell a story. For example, that guy was also at a lake digging and searching for his father and then he took me to a nearby school that was still open but he was in that school as a kid in a concentration camp during the Bosnian war so it was just him standing there and we couldn't get into the school of course so I had to find a way to somehow 
reflect on his past and the current moment. Mm -hmm. And I can see that doing that with reflection does add that layer of meaning and brings out that sort of that deeper experience. So I think one of the things that really does strike me about your photography is that the aesthetic touches alert the viewer to the fact that there is a lot beneath the surface image that you do that in all sorts of different ways in, in your photography. I've just mentioned a photograph that shows three women standing together in grief in Srebrenica. And interestingly, all three of them are clearly grieving the same person, the same tragedy. Their faces show very different uh, manifestations of grief. It's a very, very striking picture, partly because of the colour and the light. And it was used by the journalist and author Christina Lamb on the front cover of her book, Our Bodies, Their Battlefields, What War Does to Women. And that brings me on to another project of yours, which is documenting women survivors of war rape, obviously then connected to your work with Medica Zenica. Can you tell us a bit about this? Yes. So I mentioned earlier how I was following the Bosnian women from Kentucky to Srebrenica at the time of this commemoration, which takes place in July the 11th. And I sort of prepared myself mentally that going there, there will be a lot of grief. So I, as a photojournalist, I have to be stronger than my feelings in order to capture these moments and to tell a story of what's really happening. What really happened for me in that particular moment was something unexpected. Thinking of Srebrenica and the women who fled or were displaced from this area they lost their sons their husbands you know they're all male family members mostly but what happened when i arrived there there was a young man standing with these three women that you are looking in this particular photograph the young man had lost his parents his brothers all of his uncles all of his family members and then it hit me so much that i I had to stop there for a moment and capture this scene and these distant relatives, these women who were with him and his friends who sort of were offering him support, but obviously grieving themselves. So right now, as he said, I work for Medica Zenica and the organization started during the war in order to help women who were raped during the Bosnian war. And we don't have exact number. The estimation is from 20 to 50,000 women and girls. Still an ongoing project, but the idea is to document some stories, to photograph women in these places where they were either kept in a concentration camp or where the rape actually happened to somehow keep a record because it's been almost 30 years after the war. Some women are really getting old now. Some are, you know, younger. And I feel that it is my duty to tell stories. Mm -hmm. It's about record keeping for posterity. But you've touched there on both your duty as a photographer, as a documenter, and then also the resilience that you have to have dealing with these very, very difficult subjects, observing from outside, representing other people's stories. And I imagine that you've got a very challenging set of roles to navigate. You're humanitarian. You're also a journalist and a documenter. 
Do you find it difficult sometimes blending the personal and the professional sides of your work, engaging with people as fellow humans while also staying professional as a photographer? I think the professional rules or ethics kind of blend in with my own personal beliefs. I never want to do something that would offend another person or another human being. And I always tell myself when I go out in the field to document is how am I going to be able to tell this story if I don't prepare myself mentally, if I just get carried away by emotions? If one person is crying, I can't let myself cry. There is a balance. You can cry, but it's not doing me or them any good. I am there for a reason. So I have to do all this mental preparation before I go in order to be a voice for somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. That preparation was obviously particularly important in Bosnia, where you've got a personal history of trauma yourself. You were, you, know, you lived through some of that conflict. It's very important when you're dealing with victims of war rape, for example, who themselves will find revisiting that trauma incredibly painful but also very important when you're dealing with people who are in the midst of a crisis right now like people who've just arrived in a refugee camp and that brings me to some of your other photography work so in 2015 you found yourself at a refugee camp on the Hungarian Croatian border which was processing lots of people from Syria among other places and you've described migrants being dropped off by bus and you said reporters lined up waiting for the doors to open I thought about how many times these people faced border crossings. Since leaving their homes, they cross at least four countries on foot before reaching Croatia. And at each border, the media attacks them. I distanced myself from the rest of the photographers. I looked at faces through the window, wanting to find that one person I could connect with who would trust me and not be annoyed by my camera. And you did end up finding people who were willing to talk to you, not annoyed by your camera, as you put it. Can you tell us a bit about the challenges of doing that and how you set about gaining people's trust enough for them to share some of their stories and have you be their voice and have you help amplify their experiences? Yes, you mentioned earlier, you know, the work ethics and the personal beliefs. I think it's always the trust and the experience in my work, the more situations I put myself into, and it's giving me exposure to more experiences. But it comes down to really one thing, and it's that instant trust. Because as journalists, you know, we also get judged by people, especially if you don't have enough time to explain who you are, what you do, and why you do it. These situations that you're talking about, these were the Syrian refugees arriving, and we would only get maybe 30 seconds up to a few minutes with them. So you don't have enough time to convince somebody that you want to tell their story because their story is important and it's witnessing what's really happening right now. You have a few seconds to hope that they will read your emotions, that you are not there to misuse their story or misrepresent them. And when the buses arrived, I put my camera down. You know, I did the complete opposite of everyone else. Everyone went right towards the bus, taking photos at the window. I stood and I was observing faces and 
there had to be somebody who would notice me and I would wave. So in those situations, when some of the kids and some of the young women got off the bus and they started hugging me and I prepared myself for such situations. I wrote my contact on a piece of paper. So I gave it to some of the people that I've met, both in hopes that they would, you know, send me a message when they arrive and later so that I can actually have their real story and their real journey, you know, because in in 30 seconds or three minutes, you don't really have the time to do that. And it's also really being a human and welcoming them while at the same time you want to do your job. And the beauty of it is that it's important as much as for me, it's important for the people you're meeting, how you treat them. When I was talking about my teacher in Kentucky, I'll always remember her. And so when I received an email from these people and rather wrote from these young women that they've arrived and that they met a journalist along the way, it meant a whole lot to me because it meant that I didn't just take advantage of them passing through the city just to get my amazing shot, which for me... I really have to capture the moment, the emotion, and then tell a bit about them. And Mm -hmm. if it's lacking, you know, their story or who they are, if I don't have their permission, so to say, then there is no point to the story. And, and, And this situation really inspired me even more to talk about refugees and to sort of promote their lives on this border, there was a scene when a little girl yelled, asking, what is your name? And I remember everything became silent in that moment. And I knew that she was referring to me, that she wanted my name. But other people and other reporters and journalists, they didn't know that. So I walked where she was standing And I told her my name and I asked her, you know, what her name was. And she told me Lillian. Mm -hmm. So Lillian in that very moment disappeared. She went out in the distance. And then it just reminded me how I've also done the same thing. I ran off somewhere in the distance. And just how many millions of people just go and we never find out what happened to them. Some of them never make it. Some of them do make it, which is, you know, a great story. So you have this human connection, this ability to understand exactly what people like Lillian are going through. You know, I'm interested in your answers there, this idea that your photography has to have integrity, authenticity, but that your role as a photographer is partly to welcome people, not simply to document. So you did manage to get people to um, see you not simply as a photographer who just wanted to take their photograph in passing, but actually someone who really wanted to hold their story to the light and amplify it. What kinds of things did they want to share about their experiences of displacement? And what kinds of photographs did you end up taking and want to share with the wider world? So usually if I only get a few minutes and we manage to make this, you know, connection and trust, it's usually people's excitement 
telling me where they're going next. And I become a person as if they were awaiting for someone there. They wanted to tell where they're going and what their plans are. It's usually about their goals and about their future that I find out. If I do have more time, if, for example, I'm stuck in a refugee camp for two days with them or, you know, seven days, then, of course, I, there is time and place for me to introduce myself, to say where I'm coming from, why am I wanting to tell their story, what, what experiences I've had. And so then those stories become even, you know, much deeper. I get to learn about their whole experience or about who they are as humans, which for me is really important. I want to represent people as people. Mm -hmm. People as individuals. So one of the things that I'm struck by with the selection of photographs that you've taken of Syrian refugees arriving in this camp is you've got a mix of images of journeying. So for example, lots of people packed into a train carriage taken from the platform, but also a couple of photographs that are homing in on one particular person. So a woman sitting in a train seat looking exhausted or a reflection through a train window of an individual. And I suppose that speaks to what you said earlier about Lillian, who is an individual and represents and got you thinking about all the millions of other people who go through this experience. And your photography captures both the multiplicity of this experience, the fact that there are thousands, millions of refugees going through this, and it gets us looking at individuals as people, as you say. And, you know, you've got images of families on the move, families resting, children caught up in the movement and being carried along both literally and metaphorically, and this sort of sense of pause and journey. And again, your photography is really capturing a wide range of emotions there's hope there's despair there's exhaustion there's effort there's uncertainty that sort of whole spectrum of emotions uh, interesting to hear that you also feel that you're able to capture goals and a sense of future and and a sense of optimism perhaps I was really struck by one photograph in your collection which several of your photos kind of show us barriers so there's a a no right turn sign, for example, but there are also physical yes. barriers and then the guards as barriers. So what kind of representation or what kind of narrative about forced displacement overall do you think that collection particularly helps us grasp? It's interesting this that photograph. It's just people were arriving through these places in Croatia that even the Croatians didn't know existed. They found these paths and they didn't care. They, you know, they found a way and they found their way into the refugee camp. So it was a challenge, you know, how do I photograph something that they're not supposed to be doing when there's, you know, when there's nothing around me. So eventually I found that sign you know, I mean, obviously it's for cars, but I think it's a nice juxtaposition. It works well in this particular situation because everyone was telling these refugees, no, you can't just go. You you can't illegally go from town to town. And they said, yes, I can, you know, and I'm going to. And, and, and they did and they found their ways. And, and there are just other moments like the little boy carrying the corn. And if you think about it, I think if any child saw a cornfield, come on, they would go and grab one, right? But I know because I have been through this situation. I know that the boy was hungry and that he was hoping 
that on their next stop that they would make or somehow cook this corn. But he didn't know that this corn was not for humans. It's meant for animals in this area. But it's just that him thinking, oh, I can save my family. I'm going to go and grab this corn. But really, even if that wasn't the situation, I can guarantee that at least in Bosnia, all the kids would go into this cornfield and they would steal a corn or whatever, you know, it might be. You know, moments like that where you watch for them to bring them closer to to human eye. Yeah. And that illuminates one aspect that the hunger in the case of the corn or the fact that refugees and forced migrants are always trying to find their way through barred routes through that road sign. It's an amazing photographic metaphor um, for the wider refugee experience. You've been documenting migration in the US a little bit as well. Can you tell us about that photographic project? When I discovered the photojournalism school, I also discovered that I will be always documenting immigrants and refugees. And just I was out and I had to photograph something for a class. It was an assignment called Slice of Life. And I was driving around. And of course, this town is very different than any European towns where you have people all over the city. This Everyone is in the car here. So I was driving and I always wanted to give up when on the side of a road, I saw this Burmese woman, she had a baby on her back and I just stopped, you know, I had to take this photograph. So for me, that was the introduction of me photographing the immigrants in the U.S. I discovered there are so many neighborhoods where refugees live. And so I just kept on going forward with these stories. Yeah, and that collection has a really wide range of migrants from different places, different parts of the world, um, but also really wide range of ways in which they are making home or the very different places and contexts in which they're living and going about daily lives. So it really speaks to the variety of the migrant experience in the US and the variety of ways in which people are bringing something of their past to their new situation and adapting and building from that. Yes. And again, it's me seeing what myself and my community has gone through and how I became not only a photojournalist, but there were certain people that I actually was helping either with rides around the town or translations or something. I asked myself, can I do more than just being a photojournalist? Can I be a photojournalist when I need to be a photojournalist and just be, you know, myself when I'm not doing my work? So it's just recognizing each and every story that I feel has made a way into my life. Mm-hmm. And very recently, you've been back in Bosnia documenting the arrival of Ukrainian refugees there. And I wonder if you can tell us about your experiences there as a photojournalist in a town called Medjugorje, when around 300 women and children arrived from Ukraine in March 2022. You've taken a really compelling set of photographs of this community of women and children during the, the fairly short time that they were based in Medjugorje. As in your other photographs, there are lots of emotions, there are tears, but also lots and lots of smiles and laughter. There's play, there's prayer. There's a real sense of a temporary community with lives that are both in limbo, but also really connected and lots of sharing of love and companionship. 
And one of the things that you've done with a lot of these photos is infused quite a few of them with light through sunrises, sunsets, or light pouring in through windows. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about your experience of photographing these very recently displaced people and what kinds of messages you were trying to convey with your photographs there with this particular group of Ukrainian refugees. So when the Ukrainian war started, I think the whole Bosnian community in Bosnia reacted the same, which is it reminded us of all the women and children that had to flee from Bosnia. And I think it was only in a couple of weeks of the war that was it 4 million people that left Ukraine. It was a huge number. And somehow I had felt that some of the women might be arriving to Medjugorje because Medjugorje is a Catholic pilgrimage and it's quite well known around the world. So I made a trip there. So I did find the women and children and I knew that their stories were similar to the stories of Bosnian women. They had to leave their husbands behind. Their men could not leave Ukraine. So their struggle is real. And it's also one of those photographs that you have to kind of dig deep. Mm -hmm. Because on the surface, it looks like they are praying. Yes, they are praying. But it's the only thing that they are able to do when they're actually not able to do anything else. Mm -hmm. Their husbands are left at home and most of them had an older son. They had to stay in Ukraine. So mm -hmm. the community in Medjugorje was really trying to make everyone feel better. And it's one of the things that one woman said to me is that everyone is doing so hard to entertain us and we are so thankful and we cannot forget how you know we've been accepted here but we can't ignore our reality mm -hmm. we may be learning the next day that our husbands are killed mm -hmm. or another family member or something like this so they are struggling in their own way so in the making of these photographs I had to somehow attach or feel to it that this is a holy place, which I feel like I did by using the light that you mentioned. And then showing their emotions and showing what they're doing in this community. And really, they are praying. The Medjugorje community has given them a small chapel they can use every day in their own language and and pray yeah i'm struck by what you just said about you know not ignoring their reality because i think that really does come across in your photographs as you say there's the sense of a holy place there's this sense of in some ways a certain amount of festivity almost this suspended reality with this welcome this support this warmth from the bosnian community and this warmth within the internal community of the ukrainian refugees but also this shadow of war the shadow of their reality the real sense that this is a limbo that they're suspended in and that it's not a place they can inhabit for very long because their reality drags them back to very complex challenges ahead, challenges that are geographically distant as well as sometime in their future. That really comes across in, in that photograph collection that you've put together. When you're working on this kind of assignment, do you have particular audiences in mind? I do, and I... <laughs> 
I feel my audience is everyone, but mostly it's people who, in a way, refuse refugees, who are still against people arriving, whether it's their own town, city, or a country. But it's also for people who are open about accepting refugees and it's bringing the people closer in a way. Yeah, that's really interesting. This sense that you're connecting people with photographs, that absolutely one of the functions of your work is to build empathy between different people. But also, do you think there's a sense in which your photographic projects are about trying to bust some myths about refugees for people who do hold prejudices against them? You know, we talked about that term refugee and the things that are associated with it and the way in which that's actually a very narrowing, uh, simplistic kind of identity. Are you trying to bust myths and stretch how people visualise forced migrants and refugees with your photographs? I think so. I think the media does a really good way of representing and misrepresenting people. When we think about refugees from Syria, we remember stories, oh, they had cell phones, you know, and Bosnians, they like to compare themselves to them and they say, oh, we didn't have cell phones during the Bosnian war. And I say, did we have cell phones during this time, you know? And then they would argue back and say, well, you know, we didn't get to pick where we wanted to live. We were temporarily placed in Germany, but then Germany deported us and we came to U.S. And I said earlier, knowing today that this is a political game, I would pick a place where I'd want to live if I was, again, forced Mm -hmm. to leave my country or any country. I feel like I wouldn't allow anybody tell me, no, you can't live here or you are not welcome. And I would prove them wrong. Mm-hmm. It's like, who, who is anyone to tell anyone? As long as we're all being nice human beings and not doing harm to each other and not doing anything against our society, I am free to live anywhere I want to live. But these representations of Syrian refugees that even up to this day, they are still viewed more negatively than comparing them to Ukrainian refugees. Because now we are seeing how women and children are fleeing. So somehow people want to support and offer whatever they can to protect women and children versus the Syrian refugees are men who are currently in Bosnia. So there is how we view them. And there is one image that I selected that I need to send you. And it's the Syrian refugees in Bosnia helping a woman who dropped her bag of groceries or something. And they're helping her pick it up. And it's a nice moment that actually proves everything negative that, you know, there has been going around in Bosnia about these men. Mm -hmm. As you say, the the media in all sorts of different countries 
has helped to create a kind of hierarchy of refugees where some kinds of refugee women and children are seen perhaps as more deserving than others. Some are seen more as victims, some are seen more as a threat. Um, you mentioned sort of single men who are often thought of as more of a threat and more potentially as an economic migrant rather than an asylum seeker. And it's become very political. It's leveraged by politicians. I'm, we're recording this in a week where in the UK, the Home Secretary has used very inflammatory language talking about uh, asylum seekers coming across the channel from France as an invasion, you know, which is language that's almost designed to provoke and stir up hostility and a, a sense of the UK being under threat somehow. So there's a lot of political rhetoric, a lot of storytelling in the media in politics and images play a huge role in that they play a huge role in our world today they don't just communicate what's going on they help to shape how we think and how we feel about things and it'd be interesting to hear a bit more from you about what role you think that photography as a visual art form currently plays in shaping how we visualize forced migration for me it's always humanizing or bringing these people closer to the audience of course, not all refugees are nice, <laughs> or even the Bosnian community in Kentucky, there was a small percentage of us who did not act appropriately in the community. But the general picture is that nobody would be leaving their home if they didn't feel safe at home, right? So my defense to the stories and to people that I document is to reveal that they are like you and me, like everyone else, that they have emotions, that they have needs, that, that they have families, or maybe they don't have families, but they certainly should have just about the same rights as everyone else and that they are not to be judged, especially for the situation that they are currently in, which was not by their own will. Mm -hmm. For me, through my work and through the emotions that I capture, I try to connect them to audience because humans react to humans. And if there is an emotion, they're going to react to them much easier than if there was no emotion. Mm -hmm. So humanizing, building relationships, essentially, through the visual art form of photography and building empathy and generating an emotional response in viewers that helps us see the emotional impact of forced displacement, the emotions, the variety, the complex range of experiences that forced migrants go through, no one experience being the same as another and really actually documenting that variety, that wide range and that your successive projects, looking at displaced people from Bosnia, looking at displaced people across the US, looking at displaced people in Croatia from Syria, looking at the experience of very recently displaced Ukrainians in, in Bosnia, that range of storytelling accumulates and, and has a very, very powerful impact. So just to wrap up, Diana, it would be really interesting to know what your next planned project is or do you think you're going to continue to document war's aftermath and refugee experiences most definitely i'm always going to be documenting and i'm always drawn to do documenting refugees and immigrants and i think my next steps would be having exhibitions on this theme and hopefully a book 
Well, I look forward very much to that. And exhibitions obviously play a really powerful communicative role in a community. Um, so just to finish, as you know, we're running this project throughout 2023 that aims to stretch habits of visualising forced migration. So if there was one thing that you would like our project to work on or to change or to do to address habits of visualising forced migration, what would it be? First of all, I have to say, Alice, that I am absolutely impressed by this project and how you're presenting it and it's so important and I never imagined somebody would be doing a project called visualizing migration which helps so many people through so many of the different projects that you've selected to actually see and feel what all this means. I'm truly impressed and I'm so honored to be a part of this and I am thankful that the documentary photography that you are showing from my work is going to contribute for somebody to see what some of the people went through on their journey so they can actually visualize mm -hmm. the migration. Well, we're really honoured to have you part of the project and incredibly grateful to you for not just taking the time to talk to me today, but also sharing some of your images. And as I mentioned earlier, they can be seen on your website, dianaphoto.com. But we're also we've also got a small selection on the Visualising War website in one of the blogs. You just said that you appreciate about our project is that we are helping people to feel, not just to see. And I think that's a very important dimension of visualising, that we aren't just thinking about what you can see and what you can see on the surface but absolutely what really feeling what people go through and that is one of the things that your photography does as I said earlier your collections alert us to the fact that there's a lot more than what we can see on the surface and they bring us in and they help us feel with the people who are being pictured whose stories are being told through photography so Diana. I'm so grateful to you for joining me today and, as I say, for sharing your work with us and talking us through your experiences of forced migration, but also your experiences of documenting it and the mission that you have to keep documenting it, to keep addressing some of those negative stories that are in the press and communicating and really humanising people who are forced into migration through conflict and all sorts of other tragedies and disasters. I want to thank you also, our listeners, for joining us again. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Diana Mominovic as much as I did. Please do keep tuning in to our podcast. As I said at the start, we've got a series of episodes coming out exploring different aspects of how we visualise forced migration as part of our wider work on war and its aftermath. If you've got any questions about our work, please do get in touch. You can follow us on social media, just search for Visualising War, or you can contact us directly by emailing us at viswar at standrews.ac.uk. If you'd like to support our project, please share and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or whatever platform you use so you don't miss an episode. And please do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the show. Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Young. The show was mixed by Zafia Girton. Thank you very much for listening.